You're quite hostile. I got a right to be hostile, man. My people been persecuted. This is the Here You Are podcast. This is the week of Star Wars. We're recording uh, two day, no, three days before Eric and I go see Star Wars. And uh, I'm I'm one of your hosts, Dino. I'm Eric. And we're here and with, we're... Uh, we have a guest today, uh, Rob Menser. Is Hello. The... All right. Hey, listen, can, and can I say, yes. thank you for having me on. It is It is really great to be here. <laughs> Good. I, I don't know if that's genuine or not, but we'll take it. So, yeah. All right. So, uh, Eric, you want to jump right in? Yeah. So we decided that we were going to talk about writing. And uh, you're both writers, one professionally, one semi-professionally. So I thought that we, we, I, as the non-writer, would throw out questions to you guys and just have you sort of chat amongst yourselves. So I've got a handful of questions. Some of them are just for our guest, and some of them are for both of you. So I'm going to jump right into it. Okay. Dino? Yeah. Let's since, do it. Since you're one of the, the hosts of this podcast, tell me how you got started writing. So uh, how I got started writing is tied directly to uh, – how. okay, no, I can uh, – that way I'm not – mixing two questions because I know the questions in advance. Um, I got started writing uh, after reading the book Harriet the Spy in my grade school. Um, and I thought Harriet and her notebook and the way she kept notes about the people in her life was really cool. And uh, and that led me to starting to keep a diary when I the last day of sixth grade. So Harriet the Spy is when I started writing. and uh, And I started writing because... I thought it would be pretty cool to keep track of what was going on. I don't remember that book well, but I rem- does she sneak somewhere like yep. um, in a room service cart, or she's, is that like yeah. on the no, she on sneaks, the cover? Yes, that's a that's one of the famous things that she does. Yeah. She sneaks into a dumb waiter. Oh, oh, okay. Into a sort of a traditional like uh, elderly aristocratic New Yorker's house. <laughs> Nice. And uh, so she goes up and she sits in the in the dumb waiter and looks at this very elderly aristocratic old lady. So it's just yeah, she goes yep the dumb waiter and then she writes about her friends and she writes about her parents and she writes about her the maid who's really raising her and all that sort of stuff. And it's really you know it was it was a, a formative book for me as a as a young man looking to write stuff down on paper. That's a good reason to get started writing. Yeah. So, Rob, before I throw the question out at you, for our listeners who aren't familiar with your name, give me a quick 10-second resume. Um, my name is Robert Menser. Uh, I am uh, one of the the editors uh, for Gannett Central Wisconsin Media. Um, I'm uh, So I'm a journalist and uh, started writing as a... Um, like creative writing major and did some some fiction and stuff and started doing freelance journalism and decided that I, I kind of liked it. So I've been um, a full-time uh, journalist for about a decade. Okay. Um, the social relevance, uh, us being especially in the social media world, uh, what's the social relevance of journalism in this digital age of ours? Ha! I mean, so journalism is many things, right? And and um, and what 
I, so there is there's I, the thing that I like about journalism, or one thing I like about about being in journalism is the that it's a total mix of uh, of of highbrow and lowbrow. You know that there that there are. Um, there are there are solid like First Amendment uh, uh, watchdog reasons that that the press needs to exist for democracy to function, um, and then there is just sort of uh, uh, base gossip and pictures of pretty girls and uh, and it's all it's all journalism. Um, so, so I mean I think that you know we we think a lot about what is going to connect to an audience and what's the best way to to do that um uh what are the best tools and so on and what what i see every day is um that we have a that the audience wants a real mix of um really sort of tight uh easy to digest bite-sized uh uh, shorty type pieces and and long form uh deep dives things that involve a lot of new reporting and uh and legwork those are the it's sort of like on the two poles in the digital world that seem at least in my experience that seem to do the best with audiences and i think there's something kind of i I kind of like that actually about journalism in the digital age that you're you're forced to either give people something that is um, that is quick and easy and digestible, or like really give them something that is that is meaty and substantive that will that will that they'll feel like they spent their time well, you know. So yeah. so to me, it's a um, it's a lot of things, but I I like that it's a lot of things. Can you talk about a specific instance that you maybe adjusted your way of working to uh, this changing preferences of your audience? I mean, it's it's like every day for so, you know. So this is there's a lot of different types of journalism, and there's a lot of different levels. And wh- where I work is for um, the uh, s- sort of local daily journalism, local newspapers, um, and but I also work for a giant company called Gannett uh, that owns a bunch of these these um, small local newspapers, as well as USA Today, this um, this this giant. A national newspaper so um so you know we th- it sort of comes down through the big bit large corporation um the ways that what what are we have analysts who think about what the audience preferences are and um and there's a combination of of that uh you know people are on mobile we need to be doing more mobile we need a mobile strategy that's like a classic type of direction that you'll get from corporate um and it combines that with the super sort of local local stuff which is um people in wausau really care about the future of the mall so we need to focus on that and pay attention to that or uh or people in wisconsin rapids love wrestling uh, and they want uh, they want coverage of uh, high school wrestling programs. So I, you know, it's so. I, is that even an answer to the question? Is that a, a, it, what it really is? Is is it's all a giant experiment of trial and error, and you try to um, to co- you try to just pay attention to what works and and try to do more of that. And if uh, and if you're getting the message from the audience, the audience sort of tells you. Um, uh, what they like, and like I said, it's the audience is sort of more more sophisticated than you might expect, or than than a, a dystopian vision of internet journalism would tell you. Because in fact, the audience really likes original reporting, uh, uh, watchdog reporting, 
first amendment journalism investigative journalism and sort of deep dives that's one of the things that the audience really values um so you just have to figure out the uh, the topics and the types and the best stories and the ways to get it to them and when to post it and how to make the social media posts and what to say in the push notification so it's all a a, um, a, a million little um little trial and error experiments all the time yeah so, do you know what um, benefits and challenges do digital tools present for a, a semi-professional writer like yourself? Yeah. So, um, I, I I think I'm hanging up a little bit on semi-professional because I get paid to write, Sorry. but it's okay. <laughs> um, I think the deal is for me. Uh, I, I I really like I you know I'm I'm old. I'm 44. Going to be 45 this week. And I remember, you know, my college newspaper, like, you know, essentially Xeroxing things and laying it out on pages of paper, like, you know, laying out stuff with tape. And uh, so I think, you know, one of the I think one of the great digital benefits is, you know, just the ability to not have to see editors um, sort of face to face, the ability to work remotely, the ability to uh be faster and more uh like rob was saying you know kind of it's 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 a little bit it's a little bit less i this is probably wrong but it's a little it, it always feels a little less permanent until it's on a piece of paper you know like it's like I, i've done some writing for political candidates in other states and things like that or that to for but for national offices and things like that and so and it's it's one of those things where I'm still old school enough that uh, if I'm in a campaign office, I, I make someone print it out and hand it to me and I edit it on paper. But the ability to sort of get an email from from a, a, a client and say that says I need 1600 words on this topic, you know, put it in Dropbox. That's that's fascinating stuff, how fast that can all happen. And I, you know, and I've been I'm a I'm a big fan of the 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 way, and this is going to seem strange, but the way Gannett embraces, um, I'm going to use the word nimble. It's nimble nature, you know, because Gannett, based on its size, you wouldn't think it's it's a giant aircraft carrier of a journalistic operation, but it's one of those things where it's able to try things out, and it has historically tried things out at local papers to see if they would work. And then those things translate out to, uh, okay, this is part of our larger strategy. I remember when, you know, Gannett uh, initiated the, I think it was, Rob, I think th- this is the wrong phrase, but the backpack journalist. Oh, yeah. You remember sure, that, right. Like at one sure. point. Mo- Mojo's, the right. mobile, mobile journalism project. Right. Yeah. They actually, like, they yeah. laid out a kit. Like, I yeah. mean, like a kit of, of stuff and said this, there's got to be in the backpack and maybe we it, maybe they issued it to people and just sent them out into the world and said go get stories or whatever it was but it was yeah. one of those things where you go yeah okay so cameras with wi-fi cards change these that's, things and you know that's very funny yeah it's it that's very i haven't thought about that because it's very funny cuz that's like 
you know that's like 10 years ago right. uh, uh eight years ago which it, in a way it feels like it's it's it could be a million years ago um but yeah that was like a and i mean it was an experiment right like this crazy idea um you don't actually have to be in the office to write something right <laughs> i was like whoa you mean we can just go anywhere we want and file our stories um but i mean it is true yeah it, it the the message of it was like um like let's try this new thing Right. And it, and it can't, and you know, because it's one of those things where it comes from this idea of, you know, being a freelance journalist and being out there hunting stories, you know, or hunting inspiration. It's like get out of the building and go find stories. Like everybody, it seemed like for a while, not to talk about Gannett too much, but, you know, people who were here, because Eric and I knew people, because they were our friends, would go to invariably Cincinnati was the was the next city that that a lot of journalists from Wausau went to and the interview process always seemed to be the same they'd come back to Wausau and, and I'd say what was it how do you interview for a journalist job because I had no idea and uh like three or four of them in a row sat down did the interview and then they said okay you've got the rest of the afternoon go find us a story and yeah, come back go, go right thing and I'm like wow that's a pretty that's a pretty daunting task that's where you know, it's like, okay, you actually are a journalist when you can go into a strange city and find a story. You know, that that was a pretty cool thing. But I think that the the speed with which we can exchange information has changed, you know, the writing, the professional writing and recreational writing space in in massive ways. I mean, I can't imagine, I cannot imagine what it's like in a daily newspaper anymore. Well, so it, this this I don't know this may be interesting, um, but but so this is it's a it's a mix, right? It's I do work for a for a, a giant corporation, but it is um, I I do want to say like the the types of there's a there's an awful lot of uh, local control and sort of local we make the decisions, and there I, there's never been a case of um, sort of sort of Gannett overlords telling us what story we could or could not write. That sure. just that just simply does not happen. But what does happen is um, you need a mobile strategy. You need more video. You need, uh, um, uh, you know, I, I don't know, um, uh, uh, more watchdog. That's been right. that has that's been a thing before. So, um, so what? Uh, um, so it may be interesting that one of the things that that happened recently as, as that was sort of a company wide thing was these uh, these newsroom restructures um, under the somewhat somewhat uh, uh campy name newsroom of the future like it's epcot center or whatever but um but we all got new positions and i i have a new a, a different job than i than i had um uh, not long ago and um and part of it it was to explicitly divorce um editors from being assigning editors or, or from having really any role whatsoever in the creation of the of the print product so uh, so i as a as a site as an editor for these four w- newspapers in central wisconsin um I work with reporters. I talk to reporters about what what stories I think are good good for them to pursue. Um, I tell them who I think they ought to call, and I read their stories and do line edits on what I think um, uh, they they need to change or whatever. Um, but then there's a whole different set of people whose job is to um, 
is to uh, uh, copy edit, plan when it's going to go in the paper, decide what the uh, what's the best thing to get it. That's a centerpiece on the in the print product. Um, there's a there's different people whose job is to to promote it on social media, and so it's it's really it is sort of I think it's sort of interesting the extent to which um, the 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 organization intentionally has has completely separated the. Um, the, the role of news gathering, the, the, what the reporters do and what the editors do is go out and look for stories and, and create good stories that are, you know, um, uh, basically thinking of them as, as digital products. And then, and then my part is done. Uh, and then I find, oh, hey, look, that turned out to be in the paper on Saturday. Um, uh, that's interesting that they chose that photo. And that's way different than it was even a year ago it was way different than that it, it's always been the sort of the the local editor who decides this will run on thursday this will run on friday and it's still a local not to i'm sorry i said that wrong it's it's still a local editor it's just a different position he's a local guy but his position is called planning editor and so it's uh and so his job is to take the the all the stuff that's been produced all that product and and find places for it figure out where it's going to go and so it's kind of uh it's just kind of a different way of looking at it when when we don't have to think about that at all what drove that change the nature of aggregation or what was the driving force behind the sort of the separating of roles well i think it was that you as long as it was you if as long as it was your responsibility as the news editor to also fill the paper fill the product the print product you needed to then you just couldn't stop yourself from thinking um what's our centerpiece for sunday what's our uh, uh what's our what's our lead story is this story more of a 1a lead or is it more of a 3a uh story and so you you had in your mind all these like slots that had to be filled and that whether you liked it or not or tried or wanted it to or not that always influenced how you worked with the reporters how you when you decided the story was ready or not ready because damn it i need this for i need this for tomorrow right um and so and so to have that to to have that job separated out um the the sort of the um the job of getting those stories and making them good uh and deciding when they're ready um that is it's a quite a luxury we have a really good planning editor he knows he has a lot of different sources he gets he he knows what stuff he can grab from other other papers or from the wire and so we don't really feel that type of pressure on the day-to-day basis we just really kind of don't um because he knows what he's doing and he makes good plans he plans ahead and um and so and so what it means is we will hold that story until it is ready uh and i think that's i think that's I, I, it seems to be working. I, I like it. It seems to be working well. So that sort of touches on the next question that I had. This is a long one, so bear with me. But um, I found something about traditional notations of writing focus on originality and creativity, where digital environments are fostering new skill sets, including manipulating and managing piles of piles of information. How so, Dino? How do you compose through and speak back to literary and rhetorical traditions while preserving and reimagining them? Holy 
Holy crap. Um, Did you get all that? Yeah, no, I got it all. I just, uh, I've, I've been out of college for a while. Um, so I'm. I think Rob has sort of touched on that with yeah. the changes at Gannett. So I think that for me, I, you know, it's, it's one of those things that I, I struggle with. Uh, the act of I, I struggle with or, or spend time thinking about the idea of publishing what what it means to publish a creative work in 2015 and there you know I have a Tumblr site and it's it's horrible and uh, the, my writing there is is bad but it's it's fun for me to do but I wouldn't consider you know that published work i think that i don't know rob so i i guess i i struggle with this i don't really understand what the the place of publishing in a digital age you know like how how is you know brett easton ellis's oh god sorry his twitter (laughs) feed any different than his published work at this point you know or, or really anyone because you know, like Lena Dunham, well, I'll use her because I really, I just started to enjoy her podcast. So she's got this amazing pot, in my opinion, this amazing podcast that I think is a, cre- a, a creative kind of masterwork. And uh, what is it called? She seems like she would be good at, good at podcasting. I can yeah, see that. I don't that. know exactly what it's called. I'll, I'll look it up while we're sitting here. Um, but, uh, but it's different in that it's not, you know, it's not like this where we're having a conversation. Her podcast is she's talking about something that she cares about deeply and because she's a good storyteller it's compelling and i and i think okay so there's a like my friend seth just publishes stuff on tumblr and and i just don't know what like when i was in college it was a big deal to get because i was i majored in poetry it was a big deal to get a poem published like that was a thing Right. And now I can publish anything I want, anytime I want. Like I said, I put up a tweet while we were talking, you know, and is that, is that publishing? Is that published? I don't even know anymore. Hmm. Yeah, it is weird. Yeah. This, this, uh, I, I'm, um, much younger than you. Yes. Um, but, uh, but definitely old enough, old enough. First of all, just to, just to say old enough to that, the first, um, weekly newspaper I, I worked for as a summer job in college was, uh, uh, was also laid out through with razor blades and, right. and glue. Good. Um, but, uh, yeah, definitely. I definitely remember this concept of the published author. Uh, I'm a published author, right? Um, <laughs> because it wasn't something that you could, you know, with a with your uh, uh, short story or or poem. It wasn't that you could you could just do yourself. Um, it's I mean, it's it's it, the thing is like Eric asked about how you know writing goes back to sort of the larger tradition, and I you know I don't know anymore like. You know, I don't. I wouldn't feel the need. You know, like I'm. I've, I've been writing a book about an experience I've had for a couple of years now, and I don't feel the need at all to send it to a publisher. You know, hmm. there's literally sort of nothing in the way, other than I assume selling lots of copies, um, between me and taking it to a printer to get a, a physical copy, and then coming up with a plan to put it up on on the digital space and promoting it that way. I think that the, the story, I think that publishing has changed in such a, 
a massive way that I don't. But know I mean, what it's it means. just about it's just an issue of of uh, um, it's just about getting the getting an audience, though, you know. And and it's it's funny because it's easy to say, or at least it's you can say that um, well, anybody can can do it. But of course, not everyone can do it. Most most people have twenty seven Twitter followers, you know, and and even um, uh, you know, it's it's very few people who who really can can sort of do it themselves in, in self-publishing anybody can can publish something on put up something on amazon but to 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 find an audience it's it's it either takes much more sort of business hustle or i guess it takes a sort of old media platform still right i mean there's still something about being published that confers some sort of um um status or something right and and so right that and the thing is it's it's interesting because as a as a writer as a creative writer i'm one of the i i had teachers who were like you you can't think about the audience don't you have to think about you and your in the story uh, just the worst I know, I- right, advice just stop and uh but you know there's there's there there is still you know like i don't know that you and I just watched the uh, end of the tour movie. I don't know that David Foster Wallace writes a thousand-page book because he's thinking about an audience. Of course, he is. Absolutely, he is. That's you've chosen. You've chosen one of the worst possible examples. Okay, okay so pick another example. All right, he was, so. he was thinking about, and I don't mean that in the. I don't yeah. mean it in a crass way. Like he's thinking about how he wants to to be be rich and and get a bunch of girls or whatever. Right. Uh, it's that. It's that he. You're thinking about how you connect with another human being and and what this will mean to someone else in their life and that can be true of a of a, a you know a, a, a very um uh you know small piece of journalism that will pass away quickly right. and it can be true of a of a thousand page novel but it, no matter what type of type of work you're doing um uh it is you're still doing creative work and you absolutely should be thinking about how it will be is it going to be useful to someone? Is it going to be useful to someone in their life? You know, but, but isn't but sort of you know to, to go backwards then from that. But you know, as as a developing artist or a developing creator of content in the twenty fifteen, you know, as a developing writer, you know, isn't there something to to be said? Um, and I, you know, and the thing is, eventually, I concede your point. But in the beginning, I don't concede your point because I think there's something to be said for. The writer connecting with the writing. Well, there needs to be what you do. That's yeah, that is true. I mean, that is true. What you do needs to be authentic to you, right? And and um and there ha- there is an there is an element of um tricking yourself into thinking that you're not thinking about the audience, right. uh, In order to be writing something that is authentic, and that's what of part of what makes a great artist a great artist is the ability to um. Uh, uh, have a writing voice that is that is authentic and that doesn't that does not appear to be audience focused. Right. <laughs> you know. Uh, so there is something to that. I mean, if you're not if you're not able to be yourself in your in your what you're creatively putting out, then you're tr- that is true. You're doing it wrong if you're all if you're entirely audience focused. Right. And so it's it's always sort of you know when when it's the discussion about writing, it's always I'm always the guy saying, you know, look, you have to focus on the process of writing for yourself because without that, the discussion about audience for lots of people who aren't writers, uh, 
who haven't, you know, spent their, you know, who haven't gone through class and gone through the workshop process and all of that horrible stuff that you and I did. <laughs> or, or it's fun too, you know, good way to meet girls. Yeah, um, yeah, I mean, sure. But, it's you fun. know, it's, yeah. it's, uh, not having gone through some of that, you, you see people go, I'm going to write for the audience. And then all of a sudden it becomes, you know, this sort of the new technology writing, which is almost, you know, in my opinion, ridiculously driven by audience and not yeah, driven by any, you know, I use. It's I, uh, it's, it's thirsty. Right. I use, you know, the, the big tech guy, Gary Vanerchuk or Tim Ferriss, these guys who write books, who it seems like their books are amazingly successful from an, obs- from observing them. Right. But at the same time, like if you read Gary Vanerchuk's books, it's really just, so yeah, they don't, very they don't say anything right they don't they're say, so they don't very empty say. you know and it's even they're they're they lack they lack substance and voice so it's you know i'm always the guy when when people talk to me about writing i'm like look you've got to find your voice and your story and you can't you have to look that stuff is all inside you before you start writing for an audience but the yeah minute, you have to take it requires you to take a little bit of a risk and there's a you have to take a little bit of a leap of faith right. to believe that you are writing about you will will connect with someone right. but it does work it does work it like like once you once you do it, people do connect with that type yes. of writing. Oh the yeah, most. like I, yeah. I more in, so than yeah. In college, uh, I, I spent a lot of time, uh, as you can imagine, uh, with T. S. Eliot and Ezra Pound, and they sure. wrote they wrote letters to each other, and out of the letters came this this core truth for both of them that. The the only the only true that desire, the Jews are bad. Yes, that the Jews are bad, <laughs> and that Italians fascists are horrible. That's but um, no, was that the only thing man craves? The the absolute only thing, the truest craving of of humanity is the is to connect with another human being. Mm. And it's and it's like okay, these are sort of some of those big truths where you're like, yep, okay, that's a big idea that I I'm going to spend my whole life getting my arms wrapped around. You know, so. To um just to bre- just to go just to try to address <laughs> Eric your question um in a from a slightly different angle um I will you know I don't know that I uh, accept the premise that uh that r- digital writing does not um or need not consider uh originality and creativity and sort of sort of literary and rhetorical traditions um. But I do think that in I I will just say in my own experience as a journalist that it's not those qualities are not always um, ha- have not always been prized in in the in the daily journalism world at least at least at the the level that I play at which is a pretty low <laughs> low level um, and so I but I do value those things and I think the audience does too and so I have found that. When in just in recent, I mean, really recently, just when when I've tried to really work with people on those qualities, sort of sort of setting a scene and having understanding sort of literary pacing and thinking about um, uh, the 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 quality of the prose and not just the quality of the information, um, I, I found that that really it, the writers like it, the audiences like it. It's. I think it has a value for even um, 
uh, social media audiences like it, like the the most the most fleeting um, uh, fickle audiences on on Facebook. There's still just something about a good sentence that whether they know it or not, whether they realize it or not, that is something that um, that they want. Yeah, definitely. Creative creativity comes in many different ways, so it's certainly true that that would be prevalent. Yeah, I, I think, and and you know, it's it's. You know, I look at it as there, a tweet is just another literary form, and a, a Tumblr is a type of literature, and every single literary form has its own kind of internal rules and um, uh, uh, conventions and uh, uh, opportunities for interesting ways of breaking those rules. And so um, th- there can be surprising and interesting creativity um you know within the within just just any form that you can come up with but first you need to kind of understand the form itself do you think using twitter as an example do you think that having a a background in writing is is more of a benefit to those that are tweeting or is something that's you know off the cuff quick and original more more powerful my opinion is that writing is actually is actually really hard and um and and the hardest thing in writing is to be to 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 appear off the cuff um so i and i think that some of the best you know you know weird twitter or whatever some of the some of the artists who who have these great twitter feeds that are like uh, that are like crazy and misspelled words and odd punctuation and and whatever uh, to appear as if they're very um, uh, primitive and crude and weird. Uh, that I think is like they're that, those I think are true artists operating at a, a high level of sophistication. You know. Yeah. What about you, Dino? Yeah. See, I I'm sort of so I think Twitter for the most part has been corrupted as as a literary tool or as a communications tool to such yeah, a Twitter's garbage to such a massive extent that I I mean I love I absolutely love the value of Twitter but you know the the work that someone like David Coulthurst did over such a long period of time on yeah. developing sort of a story mm-hmm. without any self-promoting method or motive at all in the beginning you know he that was a dude literally just going I'm gonna tell a cool story because yeah, I got, it, cause an I got an idea. Yeah. Is he still telling that cool story? Yeah. yeah. No, it, no, no, no. No, it's, it's done. It's, yeah, it's they passed into some sort of uh, portal or something. Oh, okay. All right. So, all right. Good. So there's a portal. Wasa Loner is yeah. the uh, what we refer to the zombie story. It was awesome yeah. while it lasted. And so Patrick Rothfuss could be a, a good candidate for something like that too. I would think. Yeah, the guy from Stevens Point, you know. Right. Yeah, that's right. He's another one. But it's it's sort of this thing where, you know, it there's there's people out there that I think are really quite cool on Twitter and I and I don't know the problem for me is I don't know if that's a real person or not. You know, like I, you know, like there there are people on Twitter like I I just tweeted tonight that I'm sort of in love with Justine based Bateman's Twitter feed because she's you know the the woman from Mallory on Family Ties, and she's back in college. She's an undergrad in college, and sure. it's really fascinating shit. And I'm like, this is a really cool story, you know. But 
for her, I, I don't know if it's a story or she just tweeting about her, you know, she's just putting it out there for daily use. You know, I think that intention with Twitter, the intention of the creator is always, uh, is always for me in question with Twitter. And as a result, you know, I don't, I don't really sort of apply too much literary weight to it. Well, one thing that has had literary weight applied to it, good or bad, um, is sort of an inside joke between Dino and some of his people. But Dino was called a blogger recently. Yeah. <laughs> so I thought um, it would be interesting to see you and Rob either defend or dispel the notion of blogging. And what I mean by that is, is it just an account of oneself or is it an exercise in creative writing to a larger goal. I'm going to let you start, Rob. Um, First of all, do you have a blog, Rob? Do you do, I don't, do you blog on a regular basis? I don't know. Uh, I might have one. Um, I, I guess I have a Tumblr that I update a good, you know, I probably keep it updated once every, every six months or so. Um, I used to blog quite a lot. There was a blogging was as as you will recall and listeners will recall, uh, blogging was was very much in fashion in the early two thousands, um, and I was into that. I was also into like Hold'em poker at the time, which was very popular. I never did grow. I never grow grew a goatee. Uh, that was one thing I did escape. I didn't. I didn't listen to uh, Smash Mouth. I wasn't crazy about them. They were big at that time. Uh, so I don't know, man. I you know a blog is. I, I guess a blog is a form like any other. But really, in two thousand, what is what year is this? Uh, it feels. It feels more like a blog is just a just a name for a certain that certain sort of reverse scrolling uh you know reverse chronological scrolling author page i you know what i mean i don't i don't actually know that there are blogs anymore does anyone have a blog anymore um the the uh it, it's so I, i'm sorry this is a ran- bad answer but um uh, so at the at the Daily Herald we have um, a writer named uh, Keith Ulig, um, who is a, a great reporter and a good writer, and um, has is keeping a blog about this larger story that he's working on as he's researching the life of this guy from central Wisconsin who died in um, in late days in uh, the European battle and uh, European front of World War II. And he's tracking down historical documents and letters that this guy sent home. And he's been telling the story over a course of some some months. And I think he has the idea that he wants to to turn this into a book project. And he's talked to um, to relatives or whatever. And so he'll post it up. He'll put it up on the blog as he sort of it, it's it's kind of an interesting project. He's he's trying to be um, uh, transparent and sort of invite people into his reporting process on this long story. So that's cool. That's pretty interesting. But I mean, it's it's a blog only in the sense that it here's a page where he puts this stuff every so often. But it's not, it feels like that it feels different than what we would have meant by a, a blogger in 2003 you know what i'm saying yeah definitely how about you Dio? um so it's like a tool it's like a tool you know right so i think that the deal again not to come back to you know these things but uh um intention 
intention intention is is a big thing uh, as I was thinking about this podcast so you know the intention of a blogger is is really in my opinion the intention of someone self-publishing on the internet is the thing that is is fascinating for me so you know we have we have a, a old-time wasa friend who just started a new podcast and uh and I and I look at that and oh, I go, is it Eric Sorensen? It's not Eric Sorensen, no. Um, but it's it's one of those podcasts where I just go, yeah, I don't trust your intention. Your intention is 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 uh, self promotion, and I think Eric. I'm not going to say who it is, but it's one of those things where I'm like, yeah, your intention is not the elevation of discussion. Your intention is this act of promotion, and Marketing. there's and and it's Marketing. it it's. Uh, it's this thing where I'm like, okay, that's not compelling for me. You know, it's not, it's not a, it's not compelling. The stories aren't even compelling, you know. And part of it is, is I, I know the creator of the, of the product, and the other part of it is, it's so crassly promotional that mm-hmm. it doesn't, it doesn't have any sort of larger, larger discussion. So for me, it's, it's, uh, again, like Rob, I'm, I'm all over the place here, but. Uh, it's the, the act of publishing, self-publishing on the internet, what we would call blogging now is, uh, yeah, no, um, <laughs> but, uh, you're really close. Um, but, uh, the, the act of sort of self-publishing without the intention of sort of telling a story or doing something other than selling me an idea, uh, is, is still cool for me. Like, I think there are cool voices of people, you know, just not to come back to this, but Justine Bateman's blog, she's, she's, I'm going to guess, still getting residual checks from Family Ties. So it's not like there's anything I can buy of hers. And she's just talking about her art, the, you know, the, the undergraduate experience. She's telling that story. And then she's telling about her, her work as a film actor. But it's, she's so sort of beyond. Uh, the you know the promotion of this that she's just talking about the creation and her intention is just to talk about it and it's so it really it it gets to that point where you're like why do I have a sense of why you're writing this and if if you are writing this for a good sense then I think that's valid but as far as I think that blogging on the internet and self publishing and whatever the hell it's called is valid because at some point. Uh, there's going to be a 16-year-old girl or boy who finds some comfort in, in arranging their experience and finds their community um, in self-publishing. And I, and I, so for that reason, I don't discard it. But Sure, it happens all the time. You're right. right. I mean, it happens all the time. Like yeah. That's what Tumblr is for a lot right. of teenagers, right? I mean, that's exactly what, what Tumblr is for. Uh, is so, finding, right. Yeah. And so like when I was a kid, it was, you know, Punk rock kids publishing zines and finding other punk rock kids who publish zines. And zine culture, oddly enough, is still real. Like, you know, Quimby's bookstore in Chicago. You know, that was a thing. That was like this. If you're in Chicago, you go to Quimby's and you just buy a truck full of zines and take them home. And you read the stories of other people's experiences or what they want to talk about. And so I think that there's still something to be said for that shared experience and that's the the sort of divinity or high-minded point where i think that self-publishing on the internet is cool 
But I, think- but I kind of think, I mean, think about it. The, here, here's a, I wonder what you think about this. Um, uh, so there was definitely, uh, I was making jokes. I, you know, I like to joke around. We kid, we kid here on the Here You Are Wausau podcast. Right. Um, but, uh, but there was sort of a time, there was sort of a blogging revolution, right? right. When it oh, was, yeah. everybody had a blog and it was like the, the, the cool thing and it was going to revolutionize, uh, media. And there was this idea of, um, uh, outsiders, people who had never had voices before, uh, could have their own voice, or, or you know what, experts who used to be that they would could only be quoted in a, you know, get half a sentence into some mainstream media story, but now they could just set up shop at a blog and and broadcast their um, their expertise on whatever foreign policy or economics or something, um, and you know it. So it didn't. So in certain ways. It didn't happen. The revolution didn't happen, right? In certain ways, because there aren't a lot of um, just there really are virtually none uh, sort of independent daily bloggers who have a large audience and and uh, um, you know are are sort of um, uh, an alternative media source. What's happened is they've either gotten hired. These people got hired by other media sources. They stopped blogging or they became like magazine writers and like, you know, writing in other forms. Um, but in another way of looking at it, uh, the bloggers really did win because, because what they, what that time and place was about was about, um, uh, more writing voice in in a sort of journalistic space being able to actually write with a voice uh, a little bit more opinionated writing certainly um certainly more vivid language and less sort of just less buttoned up in general and in some cases um more you know uh, uh willingness to dive into uh, into the details and and get wonky and specific and those things all kind of have a normal everyday place in um, in in daily journalism and in the sort of you know BuzzFeed Vox uh, whatever uh, um, internet journalism um, all that stuff uh, that it really kind of was pioneered by and started by these uh, this blogging movement and even though the blogging movement is you know it's it's on Twitter or it's or it's in re- you know mainstream outlets now. Um, Still, a lot of that DNA you can trace back to those those two thousand three, two thousand four blogs. You know, I think you can also trace it back the other direction too. As the eternal pessimist that I am, you know, I think things like Fox News and CNN and their poor reporting have also stemmed from that because of the opinionated nature, perhaps, of some That's- of these writers. <laughs> that's true if the if the lesson of those the that blogging revolution is that we need more um just bloviating punditry that's a right. bad that's a bad right. outcome for sure but what you talked about earlier you know and, and and your readers clamoring for more watchdog reporting i think it's certainly not what the audience is looking for you know yeah looking for the truth telling and it's far and few between few and far between these days yeah, it's weird because I mean, obviously, Fox News does great business, and I mean, there must be—it's it, just—it it probably is just a commentary on where on where I on my um, modest position in the media ecosystem. But I mean, for what it's worth, for uh, speaking about local daily journalism, those those sorts of 
pieces don't do well for us. That's not what I, that they really don't. That's really it, it's not a um, it's not a high minded decision to avoid doing that. It's just that those those can't compare with um, uh, uh, a well reported investigative piece for engaged time shares on social media uh, uh, or page views for that matter. Okay. So, so hold on though. I want to talk a little bit outside of those numbers, but so in the, in the subjective way that uh, uh, impact just sort of cultural impact outside of those numbers, you know, I, I wonder about how much, you know, there it's, I think it's probably very subjective and, and very, impossible to measure but i think that you know daily journalism as much as it's derided i mean and it's i'm i'm one who defends you know oddly enough new daily journalists but it seems like as much as people complain about it and lump all of it together they're they're still constantly drawn to it like they're they're you know it's not like i've heard anybody go well i haven't read the daily herald in 10 years Okay, well then you, but you just quoted the story about Leilani Newman to me. Yeah, but I don't read the newspaper. Well, then how do you know about that? Yeah, guess what? You do. Yeah, how do how yeah. do you know what they wrote in the newspaper? Well, you know, well, it's just this. Okay, fine. You know, but and then the other thing, not and again, hard for me to defend Fox, but Fox's reporting machine outside of the bloviators is really good and can be put in it, and you can see it specifically. In times of crisis. So, uh, you know, in the case of the shootings and stuff like that, during the beginning of all of that, you can watch Fox do really good, in my opinion, journalism. You know, because they because they, they have a bunch of resources, right? And they have, they, have, they put resources and they, can, and they have, have cameras, a helicopter. Yeah, right? Yeah. Exactly. And so, before they turn it over to the Bill O'Reillys, they they do a really good job gathering info they do a very good job of gathering information in times of crisis in a very that's a that's very interesting and that's very noble of you but that is also that is a very narrow set yeah because they're not doing that about no uh, they'll do that about the about the most sensational breaking news that's happening at that moment but you are it is true in that in that world you're probably right. They probably have more ability to actually report facts about a car chase right. that's happening. But like, than, uh, for than example, I'll, I'll use the the Sandy Hook example. So, um, whatever I, you know, in Sean Hannity, and you know, I'm not even going to pretend I don't think he's a horrible man, but he anchored. If everybody forgets this, he anchored the news coverage for like six hours during the beginning of the Sandy Hook thing. And Christ. he used he used his his both Fox's resources and his considerable resources to to you know gather information and stuff. And then all of a sudden when it was time, he turned it into what he was going to turn it into. But, you know, it's that thing where he said give him a give him a Peabody right, award. Exactly. Right? Just a small acknowledgement that they do do daily they do do journalism in, in moments from time to time. So I just have one more <laughs> well, question. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> On that, let's get back to writing. Okay. We could talk about that for another podcast, I think. Um, tell me why you write, Rob. Um, tell- why? Yeah. Why do you write? For money. 
Short is there speech. is there another reason? Uh, um, uh, Samuel Johnson said uh, none but a blockhead ever wrote for any reason other than for money, um, or something like that. Uh, a, a a classic a classic quote from a guy who uh, made an English dictionary. So that guy should know. Yeah. Um, but you know, so for me, it's actually a hard question for me to answer because. Um, because it's so in so much a part of my identity um and has been since i was a a child um it is the only thing i've ever wanted to to do and it is the um uh um uh thing that i built my life around the the sort of ambition that i built my life around in in a lot of ways so it's so it's almost like um it's almost like why uh you know yeah yeah why is the ask the fish about the water you know it's another david foster wallace reference but um the uh but i guess i guess the answer is that um one answer is that it's something that i'm good at right you go towards something that you have a natural aptitude for and i had a had a good verbal ability and so i developed a um uh, I sort of got praise for that and, and tried to develop those skills more. Um, but I also find that it's what we've we've talked about in this uh, in this conversation that there it is a way of connecting. Um, it is a way of of um, letting people inside your skull a little bit and getting inside the skull of someone else. And um, uh, there is a uh, all art can do it. Any type of art can do that. You can you can ha- have that experience with with any sort of creative work. But um, but for me, it's words, you know. And the the words are what really um, uh, I you know I I feel a connection and I feel very um, uh, great reward when um, you know if and when it, my work can uh, can stir something in others. Dino, same question to you. Why so do you write? yeah, um, yeah. Like Rob, I, I I do in fact write for money, um, but semi-professionally I, though. Yeah, semi-professionally. <laughs> um, Sorry again. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I think that the deal is that I write, uh, I write to order my universe. So, um, like I said, I've been I've been keeping a I've been keeping a journal since I uh, graduated or fin- since I finished sixth grade, and I've I've written in it just about every day, except for two one year stretches where I I was unable to write, and uh, and and the reason that I write in there is to sort of one to document what's going on, and it's and and two is to sort of the the it's it's easier to sort of and it's easier and it's safer to process the the oh god this is horribly deep um the it's easier and safer to process the external world for me through through my through my private writing uh and i and it and it's more rewarding for me it it feels more connected to my to myself and it allows me to figure things out in a in a safer way i think the reason that i write in in public is uh like rob it's it's uh i'd like to provoke a reaction um i like to i like to feel connected to to the to someone i like to i like to get affirmation and 
what's what's funny about that? I was going to talk about this earlier. Uh, so I write the music column for the for the weekly newspaper here in Wausau, and literally no one in probably the ten years I've been doing it has ever <laughs> has ever said, "Hey, I really like what you wrote this week." <laughs> unless it's unless it's me writing something nice about a musician. They'll say, or the, well, oh, they'll say they'll, I hated what you no, wrote. Yeah, I'm really mad hate, at you. Yes, for exactly. What you wrote. Yes, yeah. and I and I I guess I discount you know some journalist ripping on another journalist because of what I wrote. But like literally, the editor of of that venture has never said, "Hey, that's really good." Never once. And I'm like, I'm I'm literally writing that thing in a vacuum. You know, it's you know writing this to entertain myself in a lot of ways, and so. Much of what I write for money is intended to, whether it be, you know, screenwriting or things like that, uh, is intended to entertain myself. It's, uh, if I think it's a good idea, then I'm just going to go with, okay, then it's a good idea. It might, I might be wrong and I've been proven wrong lots, but, um, you know, I, I, you know, the thing with, with the vice president that I wrote. Uh, not too long ago was this is just a good I, I think this is a good idea and all of a sudden it turned into this thing and I'm like okay that that just reinforces that I have a good idea from time to time and I should trust those um but yeah I write to you know if if I was going to say what I write for I write to order I write to order my personal universe there you go it's good so reason at the end of so at the end of every podcast rob we end with some recommendations and I put together three quick questions for you guys to answer and just just to end the segment on so the first one I have is what's the one digital tool that you cannot do without um so I thought about this and I don't I you know I'm um I'm not one who is into um uh tools generally like i don't i i'm i to me i don't uh i don't think a lot about gear um but i'm what i thought i would say is uh i i cannot do without uh audible.com and the audible app that in uh i've i've relatively late in life uh just in the past couple years have discovered the absolute joy and wonder of listening to audiobooks and it i swear to god has opened up um uh, worlds to me it's so great they you can put these books right into your ears like they just go right in your brain um and uh and I, I found it an amazing way to um, uh, read. I, I, it's, there's like these like giant doorstop history books that I really probably would never read. I, I, I have that I hadn't read up to that point. Um, but now I've now I you know I just finished reading this uh, uh, giant 800 uh, page uh, biography of Alexander Hamilton. It's awesome. I read a million Lincoln books this way, and uh, and I feel like I've I've deepened and had a more sophisticated understanding of history um than i ever had before because you just put in it's as simple as this let me explain this to you you just put in (laughs) headphones and then you hear a book into your brain and there and then you read it that's a that's a great recommendation i don't know what you're talking about (laughs) Okay, so hold on. As long as we're doing that, 
So I don't have a wife and I don't have ki- a kid. So when I don't have time, I hardly ever put on my headphones at home. When do you have time to do this? Listen, you got you got dishes to wash. You got to make dinner for your kids. Plus, you got to take walks. You got to this is a this is you got to you got to be a perambulatory, man. You got to take a walk before work. You got to take a little walk on your lunch break. You can get a lot of uh, listening done. Also, if you um uh, have to drive to Wisconsin Rapids sometimes. Oh, sure. uh, you can get a lot of listening done that way. <laughs> okay, because yeah. I was just, you know, I was just trying to think of like you in the kitchen where, because right now I'm wearing big over my ear headphones. You wearing big over your ear headphones and Forrest just sitting there going, "Daddy, <laughs> Dad, Daddy, 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 Daddy," Daddy? Yeah, and yeah. you're you're like mouthing along to a book about listen, Lincoln. Listen, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna be honest here. I'm not above putting in one earbud during while he during a uh, uh, um, children's TV time. Okay, uh, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll get a few a few minutes in during some Curious George or whatever. Okay. All right. Cool. Parenting advice. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Do you think that'd work at your house, Eric? Probably not. Okay. (laughs) She would. She would yank that thing out of my ear. (laughs) Shout in both of them. Not listening to me. Daddy, listen to me. Or the other person in the house. Do you know how about you? Um. So uh, this is really uh, partial. I'm going to say this is partially Rob's wife's fault. So for me, I, I've I've started writing and reading a lot more nonfiction, and I've in the last sort of three or four years, I've started writing quite a bit of political. I've been doing a lot of political writing, and so Evernote. Not to not to be sort of an app dick about this, but uh, uh, the ability to research and keep things in Evernote, and then Laura, Rob's wife, taught me over series of spicy noodle lunches literally taught me how to use Evernote in a way that I wasn't using Evernote and combine that with uh, Eric and his, his teaching me how to, uh, what is it? Title? What do we call that? Naming conventions. Naming conventions. So yeah, Evernote and naming conventions. Those are, those are my digital tools. Yeah, like my, that. my wife, definitely a power user. She really, yes. And the thing is though, like if you're, I mean, like for a while, I you were I think I can't tell if this was a joke. I don't think it was a joke, but I think you were pursuing a book about either tax policy or lumberjacks. <laughs> I don't think it was the same. Why, book. why would you think that was a joke? I don't. I don't get it. Th- I, what's What's the joke? Do you know? Right, that, I don't, is that I does that abuse was, you? My no, work? I think it was is that they were at this. You? They were at the same time. Like in my head, they were at the same time. So I would often conflate them together. Rob's writing a book about tax policy for lumberjacks. What the hell is that going to be? Um, you know, but I'm. It's it's definitely going to be an audio book, right? No, yeah, that's that's a story you want to tell. But uh, you know, it was it was that sort of doing. Once you sort of commit to research and and collecting information for nonfiction work or to support, uh, you know, a political claim of fact, that that sort of the ability to collect research becomes crucial. And in that way, Evernote has been has been important to me. So the next recommendation I asked of you was, in the last 10 years, do you know what contemporary writer has had the most influence on your writing? Uh, Don Winslow. And is, I, that I, the, is that the guy from uh, Police Academy that did the funny voices? Yeah, that's the guy from Police Academy. <laughs> no. So uh, Winslow's the guy who wrote uh, 
I don't know exactly what how I found. No, I know exactly how I found him. There was years ago I was uh, fascinated with books about surfing, and then at one point he I was like, well, I like surfing and crime. And so after googling, I found Don Winslow writes surfing crime novels that take place at the beach near where you know I've been in California. And I'm like, okay, I that sounds cool to me. And so it was his his use of language. Uh, and also the guy who writes the Harry Bosch books, whose name I forget. I think what's cool is when uh, when men f- have internalized the shitty nature of how men portray women and as such adjust their fiction writing to, to sort of go, okay, let's, let's write new women and let's write new men archetypes. I think that th- those are – when I can find those – People like these Harry Harry Bosch is a detective. It's a L.A. detective. Michael Connolly, thank you. Um, so he uh, he writes these Harry Bosch books, and Bosch is a Vietnam veteran, and sort of it's over the course of what what I'll say is Harry's enlightenment, if you will, as to you know how to be how it's it's as much about how he, he's struggling to be in the world as it is about crime, and it's really. I think it's a really cool portrayal of of both new male macho-ness, if you will, that's wrong, but new maleness and then it's it's reaction to to feminism, which I find fascinating as as a man who someday wants to be known as a feminist. So, Rob, um I listen you call me pretentious. I don't care. I don't care what you call me. You go ahead and call me pretentious. You're I'm not pretentious. Af- I'm not afraid of you. Go ahead. Um, but the uh, but I, I'm I'm saying in the last ten years the um, the 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 greatest uh, uh, literary experience that I have had was definitely was discovering um, uh, Roberto Bolaño, okay. um, who wrote the Savage Detectives and. Uh, uh, 2,666 and um, uh, Last Nights on Earth and a bunch of, a bunch of great, 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 great books. Um, uh, amazing, giant novels and and super fun, a lot of sex and drugs and uh, um, uh, uh, bohemian, fun bohemian lifestyles. Um, but uh, the the way, just the, the, the something about the the self-confidence of the pros and the, um, and the, the sort of world that is, um, that is in, that you enter into is, uh, is just great. And, and really, uh, if, if you're asking in the last 10 years, that's the, that's the, those are the literary experiences that, that really stand out. I read a lot of good books, um, but, but man, those are good. Right. You, you turned me on to, to him at some point, I think through Goodreads or whatever. And, uh, like like you're saying that it's it he's really really confident like it's, really yeah. confident like i think that uh so like uh who was i going to say who wrote the adventures of uh, michael chabon mm-hmm. i think chabon is is equally confident you know i think he's a when you read his stuff yeah. it's not like that i guy knows what he's doing sure right and he's he's going i'm going to and, and you're going to hate this but i think it's the same way where like Jonathan Franzen goes, I'm going to write a thousand page book, <laughs> and it's and, and I'm the guy who can do it. Right, I know, but it it turns into something we all hate. But I mean, like if you compare that to to David Foster Wallace's writing, 
I think that David Foster Wallace is less confident that he can pull off what he's going for. Like it seems, and a, and a lot of this is because David Foster Wallace has been sort of deconstructed to such a large extent in the media that you're like, oh yeah, he really didn't have it. He was, this was really a fluke. But if you go over his career, you're like, okay, he probably kind of did have it. But I think what you're talking about with that author, those, that, that level of confidence is sort of amazing, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I, I recommend anybody anywhere read The Savage have, so Detective anytime. In your nonfiction Audible stuff, have you mm-hmm. taken on any taken on any of the David McCullough books? Uh, I haven't. Um, although I'm sort of interested in the John Adams one. Um, uh, no, I haven't. I, so I, I, uh, I would yeah. I would suggest because it's uh, your old the old person who worked at the Daily Herald, uh, Mark Trinan. No. Wait, which one's there now? Baldwin, you mean. Baldwin, the one who's yeah. not there now. I who's gonna, yeah, who's in Rockford, Illinois now. Right. So Baldwin uh, said, hey, you know, you should try reading David McCullough's book on Truman. Mm. I'm like, okay. So I went out and I went to the bookstore and I bought it. And it's, you know, 1,200 pages. And I'm like, there's no way. Why did I buy this? This is stupid. And uh, But it's that level of confidence and work that comes from – going, I'm going to write 1,200 words about the significance of Harry Truman, and I'm going to do all the research to back it up. That's that's pretty amazing, you know, so. That's the other the other best book I, this is not McCullough, but I mean, it just does remind me. The other best book I've read in the last 10 years is The Power Broker yeah. by uh, by Robert Caro about uh, Robert Moses, the uh, the city planner in New York, who, yeah. who uh, um, that is another one of those um, those giant, you know, thousand-page biographies, and it, it really is. It really is one of the great books I've read in my life. That that reading that book for me came out of reading that the book, The Race Underground. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I read The Race Underground, and I think at some point in sort of looking at other stuff, somebody mentioned that book, and I'm like, okay, so now I got to read that. And all of a sudden, I'm looking at how big it is on my Kindle, and I'm like, holy shit, <laughs> yes. this is a lot. Yeah, but that was, I mean. Again, that's that's a like that level of you really got to have something to go. I'm going to write 1,200 words about this one historic figure. That's <laughs> just a lot of confidence. It's not sure. you're not writing you're not writing an essay about your your grandma dying in college. So I have one more recommendation, and there's the last one. It's along the same lines. What tell me what non literary influencer had the greatest impact on your writing this year? What is a non-literary influencer? Somebody who doesn't write books. Or not a non, not a like, but it could be like a, a like a podcaster or a comedian sure. or whatever. Sure, sure. Um, I like forced. John. I like John Hodgman a lot. Uh, the uh, I like uh, the he's a writer, but I mean, I I experience him mainly as a podcaster, and I uh, um, enjoy his uh, Judge John Hodgman podcast, and I think that. He uh, lays down a lot of, uh, lot of, you know, a lot of wisdom. Is that one? Yeah, that's perfect. How about you, Dino? So now, now you know, because he brought it up, I'm, I'm looking at my podcast list here, and I'm trying to figure out if I want to do any of these. Um, so my my initial thought was, uh... I uh, how about Missy Elliott? I want to change mine to Missy Elliott, okay? Because that song WTF, uh, that that new single is the greatest thing I've ever heard. 
Have you guys heard yes. it? Yes, yeah, we I have. Yeah. Eric, Eric Earlier told on me a Samsung told... commercial, even. Right. Like, yes, that's a, it's a commercial already. Yeah. yeah. Whatever. I'm buying. I'm switching to Samsung now. It's the best. <laughs> so, um, initially, my thought was, uh, oh, shit, this that sucks, Rob. You really threw me off there. Um, <laughs> my, I got more. Okay, good. Was. Uh, <laughs> This, Stephen Colbert. Okay. <laughs> fucking ass. Um, uh, so this year I saw uh, I had a, a, a and it's shitty. I hate to talk about music, but um, I had a sort of a peak musical experience when I saw the Afghan Wigs again this year and first at First Ave, and it was a sort of perfect show for me. And I was like, yeah, what they did reminded me of sort of why I really like rock and roll music. And, uh, so it was that. And then if I was going to, if I was going to be honest about picking a podcast, it's, uh, it's the David Lee Roth podcast. <laughs> I mean, not every, we can all laugh, but hit the David Lee Roth explaining to the world in a very unselfconscious way about why he chose to move to Japan over a two hour podcast that's some fucking storytelling. <laughs> that's that's a dude living a life on another level that I'm like, yep, that's pretty cool. You know, and it's, you know, like his video stuff, like he comes back to America and he's got he's got these three trained uh, herding dogs that live with him in Japan and he regularly flies back with them and they do dog shows or contests or whatever. I'm like, yeah, David Lee Roth is living a life that's sort of unexpectedly cool you know because he's he's always been you know the aw shucks dave guy but like once he got pat like with anybody when you get past that and just start talking about your actual story then all of a sudden like he he did a video podcast where he did took us on a tour of his house and i'm like <laughs> oh my god this is like this is the coolest least self-conscious man who gets million dollar checks every month as royalties i'm like this is really cool so yes his his (laughs) podcast is really nice and then if i was going to pick another one another podcast i like it's uh uh working how it's it's stories of how people do their jobs so i find that shit fascinating so i think that's it that's all right i think we've dominated the better part of an hour all right and kicked much podcasting ass so, Rob, if people want to find you on Twitter, how do they do that? Where are you? I'm Robert Menser on Twitter. That's M-E-N-T-Z-E-R. You can find me at Robert Menser. Good. And so, uh, if you and have, you do you know if they want to, and you should. What? And do you know if they want to find us? I'm I'm at Citizen Dino, and uh, the podcast is at here. Uh, is it U R? The letters U R. Wasa. Yes. On Twitter, where are you, Eric? And I'm at EC Sorensen one at Twitter. Cool. All right, so that's and about it. Thanks, Thanks for a lot, Rob. Us. Thank you. Thank you.